That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host of this podcast, and I do it because I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the accident happened there in 1979. So I take all this nuclear stuff really personally. Later in the podcast, you'll learn from Mary Olson of NIRS, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, about the NRC ruling on nuclear waste, how it impacts our actions as anti-nuclear activists, and what strategies are being put in place to take advantage of what seems to be a very positive step. Today is Tuesday, August 14, 2012, and here is the week's nuclear news. In Japan, Fukushima has now created a new level on the ranking for the nuclear scale of how bad an accident is. It is now ranked level 8, which is defined as a multi-source major nuclear accident requiring international assistance and monitoring. So that should put a rest to the arguments as to which one is worse, with the answer being it's all really bad. Also in Japan, iodine-131 has been monitored to be on the rise. The difficulty there is that it is a marker of a recent release of radiation. Radioactive iodine-131 levels were on the increase for the last two weeks in Gunma Prefecture. It could be related to increased activity, which has been seen on the webcams at Fukushima. As regards iodine-129, a different isotope, 31 times more iodine-129 is released for every release of iodine-131. So they are both linked with each other. So there are increased radionuclides all over the place in Japan. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.com was interviewed on Solar IMG, and he said, you're going to see the cancer fatalities growing in Japan. And despite the best attempts by the Japanese government to cover this thing up, citizens are going to get the information out that there's going to be a lot of deformities and a lot of cancers that will be identified in the next couple of years. Connected with that, Dr. Michelle Fernex, a professor at the University of Basel in Switzerland, has visited Fukushima, and we've been following his report as it has been progressively interpreted into English in the last few weeks. He met with four physicians from Fukushima Medical University. They all seemed unaware of conditions related to radiation contamination and were very surprised to see young patients with myocardial infarction, meaning heart attacks, diabetes, and eye diseases. Directive was given at Fukushima Medical University not to mention radiation. One young professor of ecology tried to study effects of nuclear disaster on children, but he has received threats. Thyroid diseases are already apparent, but cancers have latency, so brain cancer will be seen in children in four years and later in adults. The number of babies with low birth weight increases. The number of female births down 5% because the female embryo is more vulnerable. Appearance of diseases of the newborn and Down syndrome is still kept secret. Problems are showing up in Japan, and one strong marker for it is a recent study that was done on abnormalities in butterflies. Japanese scientists say these abnormalities detected in the country's butterflies may be a result of radioactive fallout from the Fukushima nuclear disaster last year. In a study published by Scientific Reports, an online journal, Researchers say artificial radionuclides from the Fukushima Daiichi power plant caused physiological and genetic damage to pale grass blue butterflies. 
the observations of mutations and morphological abnormalities can only be explained as having been resulting from exposure to radioactive contaminants. University of South Carolina biologist Tim Mousseau, who studies the impacts of radiation on animals and plants in Chernobyl and Fukushima but was not involved in this research, Dr. Mousseau said, this study is important and overwhelming in its implications for both human and biological communities living in Fukushima, to which Nuclear Hot Seat adds, and all the rest of us. Belgium has temporarily shut down one of its seven nuclear power plants on suspicion that one of its components might be cracked, the country's atomic power regulators said on Wednesday, August 8th. We have found anomalies, according to that spokesman for the Federal Agency for Nuclear Control, the agency is evaluating these anomalies if they can cause cracks. Now, listen to the gaming of the system here. Electrobell, which is the owner of the plant, intends to conduct additional examinations using a different type of ultrasonic sensor, which has given reliable results in the past. These current ratings came as a result of use of new updated equipment. So they're expecting that the second ultrasonic examination of the Dual 3's pressure vessel could indicate that technology of this new sort has simply given false results. New technology, so unreliable. Let's just ignore the reality that it points to. Dual 3, which began operating in 1982, must remain offline until the results of the additional examination of the pressure vessel have been analyzed, which is expected to be at least until the end of August. Here in the U.S., we also have nuclear plant closures. In Connecticut, the Millstone power plant in Waterford was shut down because water from Long Island Sound used to operate the plant is too hot after the hottest July on record, this according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Water may not be hotter than 75 degrees when used in the cooling plant, and it has been averaging 76.7 degrees. The NRC issued an emergency license amendment last week allowing Millstone, a subsidiary of Dominion, to use an average temperature of several readings in an attempt to gain the system. However, even with the revised method of calculating water temperature, the water was too hot for the plant's operation. Now, they're allowed 75 degrees, but as we reported two weeks ago, the Braidwood nuclear power plants were using water in their cooling ponds that was 102 degrees. No word on why there is the discrepancy between the two. I'll see if we can find that out. The other closure here in the States is at the Palisades Nuclear Power Plant near South Haven, Michigan, and this is because of a leak. This is their second leak in about a month. The first one they said that they had fixed. This was in a tank above the control room. But the second one was in the containment building, which holds the nuclear reactor itself. Indeed, they determined that a control rod drive package is the source of the leak. Control rod drive package, meaning the mechanism that moves the nuclear fuel rods in and out of the reactor. That's how the reactor works. This is the second time this year alone that Palisades has shut down to six leaks related to these control rod devices, and they have a long history of this problem with no permanent fixes in place. Here in the United States, an 82-year-old nun and two fellow pacifists who penetrated the defenses of one of the nation's most important nuclear weapons facilities last week are due in federal court in Knoxville, Tennessee on Thursday, August 16, where they will face charges of trespassing and spray-painting anti-war slogans on a building that houses nuclear bomb fuel. These are true terrorists. The security breach at the Oak Ridge in Tennessee 
has prompted the Department of Energy to reappraise security measures across its nuclear weapons program and private experts to criticize the agency's safeguarding, put that in quotes, of nuclear stockpiles. The activists, including Sister Megan Gillespie Rice, 82, of Las Vegas, got past fences and security sensors before dawn on July 28th. They apparently spent several hours in the Y-12 National Security Complex before they were stopped by a lone guard as they used a Bible and candles in a Christian peace ritual. The problem for the Nuclear Security Administration is how outsiders were able to get so close to more than 100 tons of highly enriched uranium, a material that could make thousands of atom bombs, or be used by intruders to create a nuclear explosion on the spot. According to a criminal complaint filed by the Energy Department Inspector General's office, Sister Rice and her two companions activated numerous alarms and sensors in a network of tall fences built in the late 1980s. But despite what appears to have been a slow crawl through the defenses by two senior citizens and a youngster of 57 who were carrying bolt cutters, hammers, flashlights, and cans of spray paint as they went under the fences, they did not draw a prompt response. In the past, security officers at the site have complained that alarms go off frequently, triggered by raccoons and deer. Well-known terrorists, because raccoons wear masks and deers have sharp objects on their foreheads. A government official who asked not to be identified because he was discussing a delicate subject said that some of the video cameras were not working at all and others could not be aimed properly. Our tax dollars at work. Robert Alvarez, a former policy advisor to the Energy Department, said in an interview, it's supposed to be one of the world's most secure facilities. It's not rocket science to maintain and repair video cameras. So this story gets both the Jellyfish of the Week Award for Nuclear Heroes and the Numbnuts of the Week Award for Nuclear Nonsense. As the Energy acknowledges spent fuel dangers and defers relicensing decisions, which we will discuss more thoroughly later in this podcast, Clearwater, which is an environmental group in New York, files a contention on unsafe on-site storage of Indian Point spent fuel. On August 7th, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission voted unanimously to wait before approving new licenses for Indian Point or other nuclear plants until it confronts the long-deferred question of how to deal with safety and environmental threats posed by indefinite on-site storage of highly radioactive spent fuel that has been building up in the absence of a permanent repository. But Clearwater filed against Indian Point's relicensing bid with the NRC and describes in detail the dangers of highly radioactive spent fuel stored at the plant in the midst of the most populous region of the U.S. in aging, leaking, overcrowded, inadequate, and inadequately monitored facilities. The safety contention was in addition to other recent contentions on the environmental impacts of on-site spent fuel storage at Indian Point jointly filed with the NRC by the New York State Attorney General, Clearwater, and Riverkeeper. There will be a link to this full article on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog, where we will also file a link for finding out the rankings of earthquake vulnerability of nuclear facilities. And this is in relation to Allison M. McFarland, the new chairwoman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, being the first geologist to serve on the panel and stating that she had many concerns dealing with the earthquake safety of nuclear plants throughout the United States. And here's a clue. The worst was Indian Point, whereas the two nuclear plants in California, Diablo Canyon ranked as number nine, and San Onofre, strangely enough, ranked as 46, in part because both were built with the expectation that they would be facing 
possible earthquakes. A little bit of good news here in California. On Tuesday, August 7th, the Laguna Beach City Council unanimously approved a resolution urging a state investigation that could block Southern California Edison from passing on to consumers the cost of repairing the crippled San Onofre nuclear power plant. The vote was unanimous, 4-0. to zero. Under state law, Edison can ask the California Public Utilities Commission, CPUC, to allow it to recover its cost through rate increases to its customers. But the Laguna Beach City Council resolution urged the CPUC to open an investigation that could end in a ruling that Edison, not its customers, is liable for the costs. Such a ruling could lead Edison to close the plant rather than incur additional costs. The Laguna Beach resolution is the first adopted by a city in the Edison service area, but is not expected to be the last. And this cheerful little note, the wife of Mitt Romney's vice presidential pick, Representative Paul Ryan of Wisconsin, spent a decade in Washington as a congressional aide and then a corporate lobbyist whose clients included, among others, the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant. Jana Ryan represented the Vermont Yankee Corporation on nuclear waste issues between 1998 and 2000, during which time she and her company were paid $180,000. This was at a time when Vermont Yankee was being sold, and its owners hoped that a more favorable set of tax laws would make it more attractive to buyers. Well, we've spoken a bit today about the issue of nuclear waste and the recent NRC ruling on it, and also the court ruling on it. And we're about to learn a whole lot more. Mary Olson is director of the Southeast Office of Nuclear Information and Resource Service, NEARS, and works with grassroots activists and organizations on nuclear issues throughout the region from her office in Asheville, North Carolina. Since she joined NEARS in 1991, she has served as staff biologist, nuclear waste specialist, and as educator to, among others, Capitol Hill. In 2010, she delivered a paper at the 40th anniversary of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty on the floor of the General Assembly of the United Nations. Mary Olson, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. I'm so glad to be here. On June 8th, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia found that the NRC's rules for the temporary storage and permanent disposal of nuclear waste stood in violation of the National Environmental Policy Act. First, bring us up to speed on what was decided and how NEARS views this particular decision. Yes, well, it was a historic decision, not only because it was well argued by Natural Resources Defense Council and a whole team of what I call the legal eagles, really a collaborative effort of many of our stars in the legal realm on nuclear issues, but also because the judges, for almost the first time ever, vacated the federal agency's rule. Well, what does it mean to vacate it? The judges turned to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and said, your rule is gone as of today. Typically, a ruling says, if it's in agreement with the environmental community, the public interest community, says, you're right. However, federal agency, we'll let you continue your current thing until the appeal. So we have to win twice. Almost in every case, we've had to win twice. And in this case, the rule was evaporated that very day, which has opened the door to many things. So what are some of the things that it has opened us up to? And are they all positive? Because I've heard some activists say that there might be some glitches in this that could come back to haunt us, and I'd like to get your opinion on this. Before we jump there, let's be sure we know what we're talking about. This was one very specific regulation. 
It does not govern the storage of the waste there now in terms of what kinds of containers or the requirements of the fuel pool or the handling. It doesn't have to do with repository regulations. What it has to do with is a very interesting regulation that was called waste confidence. Before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was even created back in the early 70s when they split up uh, the Atomic Energy Commission into the Department of Energy and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the deals on waste, this is the high-level waste, the irradiated fuel rods, the one you can't operate the reactor without generating, those deals were cut back then in terms of the federal government issuing contracts that specify that in the end that those fuel rods will become the property of the taxpayer and the responsibility of the federal government. Now, we can come back to that in a minute because that's controversial in and of itself. But given that that was the case, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission told everybody when they started issuing their licenses that this waste is most concentrated. It has 95% of the radioactivity of all, everything, making bombs, research, medicine, industry, 95% of what can cause cancer is in this fuel from making electric power. So it's a huge deal. But they turned to their licensees and said, eh, you don't have to worry about it. We've got these contracts. We've got this federal program, da-da-da. So about 20, 25 years ago, they were sued by the same guy, NRDC's guy, Jeff Fettis, saying, no, that's not good enough. You've got to consider it while it's at the reactors in the environmental impact statement. And the judges back then sided with him, but all they did was tell Nuclear Regulatory Commission they needed to make a rule about how they would deal with this in an environmental impact statement. And the rule they made said, no, we still don't have to deal with it, but we have to ask ourselves, are we a federal agency? Yes. Do we have confidence that this waste is going to go to the federal government? Yes. And what time period do we have that confidence in? And they came up with the answer most recently, they've changed it a few times, of 60 years after the closure of the last reactor. So they essentially said you can store this most radioactive waste that's causing such concern about fuel pools, and the, con the dry containers are very much better, but they're not perfect. They basically said, okay, you still can't ask about the environmental impacts of this stuff. It's still out of the ballpark. And that is what, when Yucca Mountain's license was withdrawn, and Yucca Mountain was the proposed high-level nuclear waste dump for the last 20 years, and it would have failed. It's really good that that license has been withdrawn. But when it was withdrawn, Jeff Sattis organized a, this band of legal eagles, and they went back in to court to say, how can you say 60 years now you don't have a repository program? And that is what, where the judges looked at this whole picture and said what we've been saying, quite frankly, all along. They've built a skyscraper or a Disney World with no bathrooms. And how can they get away with, with being able to blithely say that there's no local impact uh, when there really is no plan today, yesterday, tomorrow, for what to do with this stuff? So I think it's a, it's a huge legal victory to get a court to agree with the absurdity of making more nuclear waste, essentially. And that's what I think we have to go for, is there is no passport to make more of this stuff. And right now they've free, frozen not only license extensions, which are the additional 20 years, but any new reactors are frozen. And that's how it should stay. We should be fighting right there, right now, to keep any further licensing from happening.
You know, I get a lot of um, mailings from the nuclear industry as well because I always like to know what that side is saying. And at least what they are putting forward is that they really have no fears and that it's business as usual for them. To what other than huge denial can you attribute that kind of an attitude? Congress. They've been lining themselves up for two years with the Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future to rewrite the Nuclear Waste Policy Act because if they don't have Yucca Mountain, they do need to change the law. And even if by some fluke they manage to reverse the Yucca Mountain, you know, Mitt Romney would do it in a heartbeat. I don't know what Obama will do if there's a court ruling saying to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that they have to go back to reviewing the license, but all of this is in flux. It's all very labile is the word. We do not know from one day to the next what is going to be the next major breakthrough on this stuff, but we are almost certain that Congress is going to attempt to deal with this great court decision, which I do think is a great court decision, but the flip side of it is that it is pouring gasoline on the fire in Congress to rewrite the laws because clearly they want to keep making more radioactive waste. They are a very committed group of people to nuclear energy. So what can we do to start turning this around? What kind of strategies are being discussed or being put in place right now by our side to combat what is bound to be a very well-financed campaign from the other side? We didn't waste any time. When you've got a licensing proceeding going, you know, these are legal... Uh, operations that are tightly governed by Nuclear Regulatory Commission rules to make it next to impossible to win them, but if nobody does them, then we've already lost, right? So every single, I'm so proud of this, every single new reactor proposal that's gotten an NRC license application has been challenged by local communities and by a reservoir of experts and legal talent. Every single one has been intervened upon every single license renewal at this point that I'm aware of has interveners, and all of those cases had petitions and contentions filed to say you now have to consider this waste in the environmental impact statement and it shall be incomplete unless and until you do, which doesn't necessarily mean that the licenses will be denied, but it can drag the whole thing out. And that was done within 30 days of the court decision, which is the requirement. And it takes a lot of time and energy, so people haven't gotten to the next question, which is what can we do about the existing reactors that are not in relicensing? How does this play on them? And then finally, we're beginning to gear up for, uh, you know, really putting political pressure on our elected officials on these issues. I don't have a lot of hope that we can get a bill we love, but can we stop bad things? We have historically done that. We stopped Mobile Chernobyl through the 1990s, and we're going to do it again. Fukushima freeways will not be a good answer to how to make this place more safe. It will definitely be a case where we are going to be saying, don't move it now. Only move this waste when there is a permanent place a permanent plan that's actually going to isolate it for the period that it is a hazard, which is virtually forever. Clearly, we don't have those answers right now, but that doesn't mean we should start a big shell game. And I believe that there's a lot of unity in the community to stand together and not be dumping on each other, which is essentially what you do when you advocate any kind of off-site solution. 
What do you see as the level of awareness within Congress? Yes, there are many senators and representatives who have had their re-election pockets lined by the nuclear industry. But in terms of their personal understanding of the issues, at least from our perspective, what has been done and what can we do to get this information to them? Well, I think that when there's been in the past, uh, revisions of the Nuclear Waste Policy Act. I don't know what I did in a previous life to deserve two rounds, but this is my second round on this this deal. People do undertake to actually develop relationships with their elected official staff and, where possible, with the member of Congress themselves. And people do take that time to actually regularly send information. But first up will be an action alert from Nuclear Information and Resource Service. Listeners can join the alert list by going to www.nirs.org. And between now and Friday, we will be putting out our first action alert on revision of the Nuclear Waste Policy Act. Senator Bingaman has already introduced a bill. The industry already has put in a small bill for reversing the Yucca Mountain stuff. The Department of Energy, uh, basically an Obama bill, is expected after Labor Day. Do we expect major action between now and the end of the year? No, but we do think it's going to come out of the gate in the next Congress and be one of the major issues regardless of who wins the election. So we're starting now with <laughs> we're lovingly calling it like a dog marking a, a fire hydrant by putting out uh, – a community position has been worked on over the last two years through the two and a half years through the progress of the or regress rather of the Blue Ribbon Commission on America's nuclear future that was charged with coming up with a set of recommendations on forward policy. And I can say there's one thing that people do tend to think was a good thing from that process and they're saying their report says that, you know, a community should say yes to any nuclear waste site. And this is largely because of what happened to Nevada. Nevada never wanted Yucca Mountain. Nevada forcefully rejected Yucca Mountain. The Western Shoshone people, whose traditional land Yucca Mountain actually is, do not want it, said no. It's been all kind of cost and expense because of that battle and time wasted. And, you know, it's been tragic. It's been tragic for everyone. So we kind of like the sound of consent on waste, but whose consent? And how is that consent validated in terms of all aspects of a community? Is it just the Chamber of Commerce who gets to volunteer? Or is it elected official? Is it a corporate entity? I mean, what do they mean by consent and whose consent? So I think we're a long way from having a new plan. But our community has, over the years, come up with this plan. And it is reduce the inventory of this terribly dangerous material that's currently in wet storage, Fukushima has taught us that fuel pools are not containment, and we really need to contain this stuff for as long as it's hazardous. So the first question you have to ask is, is the waste contained now? And if the waste is not contained now, what do you need to do? And Fukushima answers that question because there were dry storage containers there during the earthquake, during the tsunami, and there was no appreciable harm. They have not exploded. They are not burning. You know, we don't actually know the state of the waste inside, but it's, it's not a catastrophe. So take as much out of wet storage, put as much of it as possible into dry storage, and start really engaging with what is the science for isolating this stuff 
virtually forever. Don't look for a place until you have a plan. Once you have a plan, then look for the place. And we certainly support democracy and local communities having a right to say no. And that was the big news out of BRC is that they agree with that. So I understand there's going to be a telebriefing that NEARS will be holding on August 23rd. What can you tell us At about that? 4 p.m. Eastern, which would make it 1 p.m. Uh, Pacific. And they can email me, M-A-R-Y-O, at N-I-R-S, NEARS.org, MaryO at NEARS.org, and or sign up for the alert because the alert is going to uh, also tell people about the telebriefing. And we will have the attorney who won this waste confidence decision, Jeff Fettis. We will have Don Hancock, who is uh, with Southwest Research and Information Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's going to talk about consolidated storage and the history of that and the current proposals. And we're also going to have Steve Frischman, who has worked as a consultant for the state of Nevada for many years on the Yucca Mountain issues and is a geologist and technical expert as well. So we will have three speakers. It won't be a discussion. We'll take questions and answers. And then those who are interested in staying connected and being part of an ongoing conversation will be invited to a call the following month. So the potential is there to create some strategies for local activists to dis enter into discussion with their local communities to see what they can do to get an official no when it comes to storage as opposed to giving approval. Indeed. We see absolutely no role for moving the waste now. It's essentially a parking lot with a chain-link fence, probably only one, so the people who want to get in there with spray paint will probably have no trouble at all. A few uh, floodlights, maybe two guards. Many of these facilities that are at reactors are currently in line of sight of roads and shorelines. We very much want to see those hardened, which would involve simply using a bulldozer to create earth berms between those roads and shorelines and those storage containers. But these parking lot dumps, as we call them, are really for only one purpose, to get the waste out of sight and out of mind so that the nuclear utility corporations and merchant plants now, they're trying to build those, uh, can generate more waste. And we think that moving the waste twice compounds the transport risks, and putting it in one congressional district is really stupid. We need to keep a lot of people in this dialogue until we have a good answer. What can we do to support you and NEARS in this invaluable work that you are doing? Our list is growing, and we like the email list a lot because it allows us to send out a lot more information with links and that kind of stuff and ask people directly to do actions as compared to Facebook and Twitter. I mean, they're okay, but they're much less dynamic than our being able to give someone an action alert and their ability to act on it. We have had thousands and thousands of emails go to Congress just last year on the issue of backing loans for new reactors and have, you know, really substantially impacted those decisions. So we'd really love to see our alert list grow. And then, of course, every time someone's on there, they have the opportunity to also give us a, a donation. Like every other group, we'd love it if people would make a monthly pledge, five bucks, ten bucks a month. What could they afford? That would be great. But it's not required for the alert list. It's totally free, and we just want it to grow and spread.
So, Mary, any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? You know, I really think the fundamental issue is the right to make this type of waste at all. Why and how have we delegated to our government the right to approve this for corporate activity? In the 1950s, there was a discussion, you know, everybody wanted nuclear energy because it was atoms for peace and too cheap to meter, and yet there were those who said it should remain a government program, remain small, see what the challenges were, see if it worked. If that had happened and thinking, feeling people had been honest, I don't think we would have the mess we have today with this radioactive waste in Fukushima and Chernobyl. I think it would have been viewed as, oh, yeah, that might have been a good idea. So here we are with this colossal mistake and a skyscraper with no bathrooms. Why should we let them build another skyscraper with no bathrooms? So as we go into this revision of the Nuclear Waste Policy Act, I think we have to push equally hard on the whole notion that we have to stop making more of this waste. And I don't think Congress is where that happens. I think it's case by case. It's like San Onofre being offline. We've got to keep it offline. As long as it's offline, it will not make any more of this waste. And there are other reactors, Crystal River in Florida, similar situation. It's just like Japan. As many of the reactors offline, we've got to keep them offline. Don't build any more and help the ones that are online find their way off. We just plain have to end the production of any more of this waste. Beautifully put, Mary. Thank you so much for being on Nuclear Hot Seat. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Mary Olson is Director of the Southeast Office of Nuclear Information and Resource Service which can be found at nirs.org. For our holistic healing and radiation protection tip this week, I need to remind you that this information is offered as information for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a recommendation of foods to eat or supplements to take, medical procedures to engage in or to stop engaging in. For that, you need to see a doctor, nutritionist, or other licensed professional. And as you can tell, I've recently seen my lawyer. Here's the tip. NASA is in the news this week for its recent triumph with the Mars space rover Curiosity. But they've done a lot of research into ways to minimize or eliminate damage to the human body from radioactivity. Their scientists found that the drugs they developed were very toxic, so they turned to natural compounds. Plant flavonoids, which were found to be radioprotective, include ginger, which was found to protect animal DNA from massive exposure to gamma radiation, the most destructive kind. Ginkgo biloba. Garlic, which protects from ionizing radiation. Curcumin, which is a turmeric extract. And quercetin, which is found in fruits, vegetables, leaves, and grains, and most specifically in pomegranates. So here's the marching orders for the week. Go out, get a whole bunch of organic produce, Make certain that you wash it in purified water that includes zeolite or bentonite clay so that the radiation gets fixed and doesn't continue into your body. Rinse that off with more purified water. And then make a salad, a veggie stew, a fruit soup, a whole big bunch of quinoa. And know that by eating this kind of food, you're not only taking down your cholesterol level, you're giving your body ammo to fight back against the devastation of radiation. Now, our final thought for the week this comes from an article that appeared in Forbes on May 29th and was written by reporter Jeff McMahon. He was addressing reporters with this, and it's an important issue that has not been addressed directly before. 
should we hide low-dose radiation exposures from the public? He goes on to say, if even very low-dose radiation can sicken and kill people, should we hide exposures from the public? When fallout from the Fukushima nuclear disaster began appearing last spring in U.S. air, rainwater, drinking water, and milk, many U.S. media outlets ignored the story. It was a difficult story to cover. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency was releasing raw data erratically, sometimes late on Friday afternoons, known to be the dead zone for reporters. And reporters either had to possess radiation expertise or take a crash course in picocuries, millisieverts, MCLs, and DILs. It was much easier for reporters to accept reassurances from government officials that the fallout drifting across the U.S. was, quote, well below levels of public concern, end quote. And it was much easier to heed pleas from government and industry that we not alarm the public. But experts in low-dose radiation will tell you scientists know too little about the effects of low-dose radiation for public officials to make such sweeping statements. And most scientists believe that across large populations, more exposure means more cancer. There is a scientific consensus that the occurrence of future cancer is proportional to the dose of radiation received. This according to Gordon Thompson, Executive Director of the Institute for Resource and Security Studies that was published in the May-June issue of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. This hypothesis is called the linear no-threshold hypothesis. It implies that no additional dose of radiation, however small, can ever be described as absolutely safe. And Thompson suggests, public fear does not provide a reason to hide the logical implications of the LNT hypothesis. An attempt by experts to hide these implications is likely to be counterproductive. The truth would probably be revealed eventually, leading to diminished public faith in the relevant experts and in science in general. Ultimately, public fear could be exacerbated. In past years, well-meaning doctors would often withhold the diagnosis of cancer to avoid alarming a patient. Now such behavior is generally regarded as patronizing and obsolete. If this is true for public officials, it's at least as true for reporters, who should act as watchdogs, scrutinizing the actions and statements of public officials. So reporters, do your due diligence and report. Don't just be PR flax for the corporate and government interests. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 14, 2012. You can find us posted on NuclearHotSeat.com. Just click on the blog page. You can find us on Facebook as Nuclear Hot Seat and Nuclear Hot Seat Group, and you can subscribe on iTunes Podcast. Feel free to share the links and forward the download, and if you have thoughts on how to improve Nuclear Hot Seat, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Hardest Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep. Speak with you next week.